Hey, Peace Nicks. Today's guest is Scott Silverman. He is a substance abuse expert, crisis coach, and author of the book, The Opioid Epidemic, What You Don't Know Will Destroy Your Family and Your Life. Quite the fearful and ominous title. Scott is a 12-step person and runs a recovery center and believes in abstinence. So we don't agree on everything. He was a drug user and abuser himself, so I believe his heart is in the right place and he has the experience to back up his work. And I don't disagree that abstinence, if it works for someone, isn't great. And for some people, maybe the only thing that will work. You know, one thing I like that Scott said is that his clinic doesn't turn people away who use cannabis when alcohol is their problem or methadone to get off heroin. Some 12-step programs will turn you away for any drug use. Also, Scott gives his number at the end of this podcast for anyone listening who is an addict or has a loved one struggling with substance abuse disorder. He says to give him a call and it'll help steer you in the right direction. I thought that was so sweet. Scott and I might not see eye to eye on everything, but I agree with the work he's doing. And I love that when I asked him if he would support legalization of drugs, even like heroin, if the science shows that it will be better for people, he said he's 100% open to anything that will save lives, including legalization. I absolutely love that. Someone who is against drug use completely, still willing to support ending the drug war to save lives. He did say that Colorado is kicking itself for the way it legalized so fast and that the black market is worse now and California can't do anything to stop the black market short of subsidizing the cannabis industry. I had a lot of questions about that and was wanting to circle back to that point because I've heard the opposite. I know places that legalize and decriminalize in a country where most states haven't will experience an increase in homelessness and addiction and crime due to an influx of people who have mental illness, who self-medicate and migrate to places that legalize. I believe if the federal government legalized, the problems wouldn't have gotten worse anywhere. I believe they would have gotten better. Unfortunately, we were not able to circle back and talk about these things because 30 minutes into our conversation, Zoom, we do our podcast through Zoom, Zoom alerted me that our session would end in 10 minutes unless I upgrade. I never had this problem before, and I'm not sure if they changed their time policy or what, but it really threw me off once that countdown clock started. I clicked upgrade while Scott was talking, and then another screen popped up over his face, which was distracting, and I knew it was about to ask for payment, and I was in my studio without my wallet, so I just exited out and decided we would have to cut the conversation short. I like that Scott said when I told him we had only nine minutes left, that he was a tweaker and he surely could cover some ground in nine minutes, and he did. So I'm gonna figure out the Zoom thing so it never happens again. Peace, Nicks. And, you know, maybe I can have Scott on again. I'd love to talk to him again and talk about these things, but even with that interference, I think it turned out great. I really enjoyed talking with Scott. Again, Scott Silverman, check out his book, The Opioid Epidemic. Okay, before we dive headfirst into this 44th episode, I'm going to suggest you smoke a hemp cigarette while feeling the calming effects of some red vein kratom. You don't have a hemp cigarette? No problem. Go to sugarcali.com and order some. They have three flavors, original, which is my favorite, and vanilla and mint, which I also enjoy. 
They are a good substitute for tobacco, and you can get 15% off of your purchase by entering the offer code PEACE15. And if you enjoy Kratom, go to happyhippoherbals.com and enter the offer code THEPEACE15 and save 15%. Happy Hippo Herbals has all kinds of strains, and they have Kratom Taffy, which is delicious. And again, that's happyhippoherbals.com, offer code THEPEACE15. And for a hemp cigarette that doesn't taste like shit, that's their slogan, and I agree. Go to sugarcali.com and enter the offer code PEACE15. All right. Let's dive in with Scott Silverman. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. Your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. All right, cool. How are you, Aaron? I'm doing great. I, I also, I love your background, by the way. That's really cool. The sunflowers. Well, I, I am in San Diego, so I figured I'll just slap people around with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I was going to ask where you were. I wasn't sure. Um, San Diego. That's awesome. I can't wait to get out there. My cousin lives out there and I have not went to visit her yet. But um, yeah. yeah so, what, part of the, what, part of, what part of the world are you in? I am in Fort Myers, Florida. Mm, okay. Yep, it's uh, just starting to get super hot out. And a little humid, too. And humid, and we just started getting the summer showers. Got them a little earlier. It's been raining every day. But uh, I like the I like the storms. It's nice. Cool. So um, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime I can get a chance to talk about what I'm passionate about and saving lives, I uh, I do. I've got a. I think I have a 5.45 a.m. segment tomorrow morning with Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, there's there's been an epidemic all over the country. I've talked about it on my podcast. And um, I wanted to ask uh, your views on addiction and talk about your book, uh, The Opioid Epidemic. And um, are you comfortable talking about your past um, addiction and how you got out of that? Yeah. I mean, the favorite question I've been having probably the last 25 years when I go on with the local media is they open up with, hey, Scott, welcome. And hey, tell us about that attempt you had on suicide. You know, and they always say it with, hey, tell us about that attempt you had on suicide. Like it's, you know, we we just can't wait to hear, you know, it's like the new popsicle. So it's amazing. Now, I've been very public with my recovery and I think it's important for me to let people know that it's okay to share that, uh, even though I belong to an anonymous program. But so there's nothing you can't ask me. As a matter of fact, I dare you to take me to the limits. Yeah. So, um, so what was the, your, the, the addiction that you suffered? And it was New York City, correct? You were in New York when you were I'm going through. This. I, I knew I was actually in New York the last part of my. Um, using and drinking. I had a, a week of blackouts, gotten fights. I was picked up by New York's finest, uh, but I carried a badge for my business. So they took me back to my hotel. And uh, and it, it was funny because that week I was there, there was the convention for uh, undercover narcotics officers nationally, and they were a, a gold and silver badge. And my badge, even though it said corporate security was gold and silver. So they just assumed that I was there for the conference. So they took me back to my hotel rather than jail, which was a miracle. I look on that one. So, so alcohol was was the drug that was the problem that you had. 
alcohol was my probably my primary, uh, but I did a lot with hallucinogens. I had a major cocaine issue. Uh, I'm a retired unlicensed pharmacist. My drug of distribution was methamphetamine being in San Diego border town that was easy to get. Um, you know, second all, I can go on and on. The list is pretty, pretty long, but you've been sober a little over 37 years now. So of continuous sobriety. And that's the thing I really, I hang my hat on more on that than what I used to do and what it used to be like. But, you know, I share that story whenever it's relevant. Gotcha. Well, so are you in a, you're an abstinence, you, you um, promote abstinence-based um, recovery, correct? Well, I, I, I promote abstinence-based recovery, but I also support uh, harm reduction um, and uh, medically assisted treatment. And I'm also acutely aware that people who suffer from this disease of addiction or people who are self-medicating or a poly drug that one size doesn't fit all. And, you know, I do run a treatment center. And we're now patient program certified by the state of California. So what that really means is we're allowed to take insurance and provide a uh, curriculum that's appropriate for people that are suffering from substance use disorder. And I, you know, for example, I'm the kind of person that if somebody comes to me and says, look, I, I, I don't mind giving up alcohol because it's destroyed my life. But, you know, marijuana is legal now. I want to keep smoking marijuana. I'd rather have them come into treatment and talk about that. And know that, you know, ultimately the goal is to get to abstinence. But you know what, if if you can't if you can't find a place, because a lot of places won't take you if you share that. They just won't let you in. Yeah. They just say, you know, we're absence based. We're a 12 step program and you can't come in if you're using other drugs. And a lot of people are taking antidepressants. A lot of people are taking other types of medication. A lot of people who are addicted to opioids may be on methadone. They might be on other um uh, medicines and medication uh, prescribed by a doctor. So we want to bring them in. I'd rather talk to somebody. Um, what is it? I like to say, I'd rather talk to somebody for about 20 minutes about what's going on with them than uh, spend an hour at their funeral. hundred percent. Absolutely. And I, I, I've heard stories of 12 step programs that um, are so abstinence based that they've told people to convince people to get off their depression medicine and then the people have killed themselves and some of the responses were horrible where they're just saying well at least they died sober and it's like i i think that that we should make exceptions I, and again if you're suffering like you said from alcohol and cannabis helps you i think that that's better than sticking with alcohol and like you said if you can get to abstinence of course i i you know i, I promote however whatever recover people use i use cannabis um i've had problems with opiates so i stay away from those but um I do think that if you can be, ha if you can find happiness with being sober, then that's, that's old. That's the ultimate. There's nothing, there's nothing better than be, being, if you can be happy sober, but there are people I've talked to you on my podcast who have been sober for, you know, went months and months and months sober and just were just depressed and that they, they found happiness in drugs. And some, and one of my authors, uh, David poses that came on, he actually, uh, heroin was what made him happy. And he quit many times for long periods of times and just was was suicidally depressed. Depression medicine didn't work. Heroin helped. So when you have kids on the streets that this helps and Oxycontin helped now that now they're pushed to the streets where there's fentanyl everywhere and it's killing them in these large numbers. Like what, what, how do we get kids to, if that can't find sobriety uh, as, as the only option, how do we get help for them? Yeah. Well, by the way, I knew that you, uh, you had a cannabis, um, you lean towards cannabis. You know how I knew that? So my 420 special. No, your uh, lava lamp. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, my I decorated my uh, my, my whole podcast studio with kind of like a head shop stuff, you know. 
No, I'm, I'm just teasing. They, no, they, no. they used to we used to say that a lot of lamp on the window was kind of like the um, Krispy Kreme, you know, the donuts are warm. Come on in. Yeah. So I, I, how many lava lamps I broke over the years with my excitement. That was just a joke. Um, I think it's a good question. And, you know, for me, you know, marijuana is legal in California. Uh, the feds are the federal government's still trying to legalize marijuana nationally. You know, I and I'm somebody who partied every waking hour I possibly could. So I'm I, and, you know, my very first book, Tell Me No, I Dare You, is about my story. And, you know, I've written a second book, uh, you know, The Opioid Epidemic. And all I want to do is I have this new concept. I call it, you know, everyone likes everyone likes pie and pie is, you know, to prevent, inform and educate people. So when they're making the decision to um, experiment, to even self-medicate, that they're careful about it because, you know, right now in California, according to a California DA who spoke up in January, 80 percent of the illicit drugs or street drugs are are laced with fentanyl. And fentanyl is not a party drug. Fentanyl is a poison. And when I hear stories about, you know, accidental overdoses, where young people are, you know, taking counterfeit medication that's laced with fentanyl and, and they die, at, you know, at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. And all they wanted to do was party. It, it just it upsets me and it scares me and it causes me pause because you wouldn't drive your car at 60 miles an hour in a rainstorm with your headlights off. So why would you take a pill and put it in your body? if you had no idea where it came from. So all I'm asking people to do is be informed, make an informed decision. And if you're not certain, look, I, I raised two daughters, you know, and, and the, it's coming back again, the new date, the, not the, the old date rate drug, rape drugs are being put in cocktails at bars again, and other things are being put in there. So, you know, we taught our kids don't pick up a drink at a bar if it wasn't handed to you by the person pouring the drink. So, I just want to caution people to just make educated information. Give me an example. Talk about extreme educate, informed educational uh, decision-making. We had a guy here in San Diego. He was interviewed by a reporter uh, and he wanted to speak up. He says, look, I'm addicted to methamphetamine. I live on the street. I have for years. I choose to put methamphetamine, you know, in front of me because I like it and I want it. And he says, I'm concerned about fentanyl. He says, I got a hold of fentanyl test strips and I test my, my methamphetamine to make sure there's no fentanyl in it. Now, you know, for a street consumer, that is sophisticated thinking and smart thinking. It's kind of like, you know, if you were allergic to um, cheese, you know, or you were lactose intolerant, why would you eat a lot of ice cream and drink a lot of milk and a milkshake knowing that the aftermath is going to be, you know, it's not going to kill you, but it's certainly going to make you uncomfortable. So I, I am, I'm open to what people have to say. My only argument with, with young people is look, Scott, marijuana is legal. And, you know, and I know what the THC content is in, in street marijuana today. And I just say, look, you know, science says developmentally, it's going to impact your brain, if not shut it down from developing. So let's talk about, you know, how we make the decision to do what we do. That's all. Yeah. And I have heard things about it messing with the development of the brain when you're for younger people using it. So I do have a lot of questions about that for younger cannabis users, but for adults making adult decisions on cannabis and other drugs too. I mean, if we look at the opiate, like when you talked about people making decisions to take a, a pill that they don't know where it came from. Well, if you think about someone that got addicted to, um, 
you know, a prescription medicine, say they were, they they're somebody all elderly in their family that passed away that left them a good supply and they got addicted to them. And then once that, that supply runs out, you, that you find some someone on the streets that has a Percocet lo- that looks just like the ones you were taking, but they're being made counterfeit with fentanyl in them. And you're going through withdrawals. You're, you're just going to take that. A lot of people are just going to roll the dice. Not everybody, but a lot of people will roll the dice because of their addiction. And especially younger kids. When I was young, I did not care where the, I didn't ask where they came from. Oh, this is ecstasy. This is whatever it is. I'm going to take it because I was going through my own trauma and these drugs were just, and also didn't really care if I died. Now, luckily fentanyl wasn't all over the streets when I was younger doing that. Cause I, I, I doubt I would be alive right now. Had, had I been doing drugs at this current, current time, the way I was when I was young. So the question, how, how do we, can we get a safe supply to people wh- while still trying to get people abstinent, like they're doing in Switzerland? Can we, do, do you agree that, do you think it's possible that we could legalize a drug like heroin for addicts to help them get off of heroin? And some people will stay on heroin. This is just a fact. Yeah. By the way, your description of your substance use, you know, as a young person is identical to mine. I mean, I, you know, when you, LSD, we used to come in a format, we called it blotter acid, where mm-hmm. the liquid was was dripped on a, a celluloid that would dissolve when you ate it. I I was like you, I, I someone said, you got to try this stuff. You know, I, I, I didn't even want to orally take it. I put it into my eyeball. So the tear wow. ducts, the tear ducts actually gets the, 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 the high to your brain quicker. I mean, I used to shoot tequila through my nose because it, it, did things to me through my nose. I couldn't get by the time it digested through my system. So I, I understand that mindset really, really well. And I, I respect people and I'm not one who can judge. So to answer your question, you know, other countries who have legalized things, one of the things that they have done, in my opinion, uh, is they have made treatment available immediately to anybody who wants it. So it's not a matter of, You know, I've spent some time in Amsterdam and I was in Turkey for a little while where you go to jail or prison if you don't, if you get caught. And I was um, selling hash in Amsterdam in 1976. So I I get, you know, what other parts of the world are doing, but they also, you know, with socialized medicine in some countries and those who legalize it, they make it 100 percent understood that if you raise your hand and you want treatment, you don't have to make an appointment. You go right into treatment. And I think if we could find a way to do that in this country, then I'd say let's experiment with legalization. But, you know, we're seeing now just with Mar- And look, America has got this pillar in a society. We have a whole different way of looking at medication. You know, I can't tell you, I go to my home group four days a week and probably half of the people there um, are self-disclosed individuals who have ADHD. So, you know, we we are on a lot of medication in this country. I don't think a lot of other countries are. I think, you know, there are, there are countries in, you know, Pakistan and Afghanistan, which I used to get my old hash from, you know, it's part of their daily routine. I mean, in, in Europe, you know, having a bottle of wine every day was normal. Uh, but for us in the U.S., I think we, we go to excess with a lot of things. And it's not a judgment. It's just kind of a informational factoid that we all makes us a little bit different. And I think that's why drug manufacturers target the U S not only because we have disposable income, but we're the kind of consumer, you know, and people ask me all the time, why would somebody who manufactures and distributes fentanyl knowing it could kill their consumers continue to sell the drug? I said, every time there's an overdose that hits the news, there's sales spike. 
Their sales go up. The consumers increase. And I was like, you, somebody would, if I were in this world today using, I would be a fentanyl consumer. And there's a woman who was just interviewed in Skid Row by a guy who's got a huge following on YouTube. And he asked her, he said, well, are you concerned about the, the, the fentanyl that's in the drugs today? And she says, oh, I've been doing drugs so long. I'm so I'm immune. Fentanyl can't hurt me. And the thing is, fentanyl can't, but fentanyl's poison. There's a difference between fentanyl and even marijuana, even secondol, even cocaine or crack or, you know, methamphetamine. And all of it's stronger and more potent and less expensive than it used to be. But historically, it didn't kill people, even heroin. I mean, you remember Whitney Houston when she passed away? I remember it was Dr. Uh, what was his name? Um, not Dr. Was it Dr. Drew? Anyway, one of the big docs, TV docs was so upset. He said, you know, musicians and entertainment people and sports people, they've been shooting heroin and taking mescaline and hallucinogens for decades. He goes, but today people who are taking illicit drugs and mixing it with prescription drugs are dying. And overdosing. He said, we've never seen this before. There's not enough studies yet to really tell. For example, if you're on an antidepressant, you know, then you've been on for a long period of time for anxiety, depression, you know, sleep deprivation, whatever. And it's prescribed and monitored. And you mix that with some of the illicit drugs and alcohol, you could overdose from that. And that was not something, in, you know, I'm 68. When I was getting high, that was not an issue. The only time people were getting hurt, generally speaking, is when they were so impaired and they were behind the wheel of a car. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I, you know, I think one size doesn't fit all. And I, I know people have been on methadone for a decade or more, even longer. And people poo-poo methadone. And it's probably the one of the few things that have really helped people on heroin live a normal life. And I know people on methadone that don't do heroin that still smoke marijuana and drink. Yeah, and they say I, you're I not supposed to do that with, and I have friends that do that with suboxone. And I've had friends that you've used Kratom now to get off of it. And that's helped them that we don't have a lot of studies on Kratom yet. And um, the experiment's kind of working out in the public, which hopefully doesn't go really wrong. But um, no, I, I, I do question the, the, um, I don't, I don't like when I was, when I was growing up, there's the drugs on the streets, were killing people, but it was, I, I lost a few friends and it was opiates and it was usually mixed. Like you said, about 30, 30% of opioid deaths also have benzos and prescription anxiety medicine. And, um, a lot of them don't, but the fentanyl is killing a lot more people now. But when I grew up, I watched, I, I had friends die. And recently I've had friends that didn't get clean that have died that like every year, that will be somebody else. And I, even I had a friend in 2020 that died of a fentanyl overdose and he's not a fentanyl or an opioid user. It was cocaine that had it in it. So it's making its way into other right. products. And also people that do ecstasy are, are now dying again at raves because fentanyl is making its way into ecstasy pills. And ecstasy, MDMA, is a drug that can be abused like all drugs. But when it was first in the club scene, it was relatively safe, safer than alcohol. And it was outlawed because of a, a ridiculous study of MDA that was just done on rats, not people. So the question is, can we create a world where we allow adults to make these decisions for themselves um, without, I think we, because I think people that are for prohibition and people that are against prohibition, like myself, we all want the same thing, right? We want a healthier society. We want less people addicted. And right now, the current crisis is we have people dying daily in our streets and our cities. And these are our friends, our family, our children. So how do we 
like in your opinion, how do we stop this from happening? Is it, I, I agree with the idea of opening up more treatment facilities immediately, but for drug laws, do you think we can change some of these laws and at, at, um, you know, grant safe access, or do you think that's too dangerous? I think it's going to be a slippery slope, but at the end of the day, you know, there's a saying around one of the definitions of insanity, you do what you've always done. You get what you've always gotten. I clearly don't think that what we're doing is working. Look, in my industry, a $40 billion treatment industry, the average person who leaves a treatment center after 30 days, 95% of those people, the average person going in, 95% will relapse. So clearly we haven't got a plan that's working. So I don't mind, but the problem with the way our society works, you know, it's kind of like all or nothing. I mean, Colorado is just, you know, they're kicking themselves for the way they legalized marijuana and what's happening now, you know, and there, there are people that are vaping marijuana or liquid uh, hash that's been laced with fentanyl. So it's everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. And the problem with fentanyl, again, it's a poison. So I don't know how we, even if we legalized every drug, how we would prevent people from uh, stopping you know, consuming illicit drugs. California just had a major issue where the real, the retail CBD and the marijuana distributors are up in arms because they're concerned that their retail storefronts are losing money every day because illicit marijuana is still being sold. And so they're looking for the government to subsidize their loss of profits, which I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but if it does, it's going to be a real issue because then how do you address the businesses that closed during COVID that can't get back open because the SBA won't make enough loans? So it's a, it's, it, you know, and it seems like there's always this, you do this and there, you know, it's like a balloon, you squeeze it, goes off in one direction, you squeeze it, it goes off in the other. But to, to simply answer your, your direct question, and I, you know, I, I wrestle with it, but I see what other countries have done. And I've got a colleague of mine who's a psychiatrist who, worked for United Nations traveling the the world for two years. And he even said, he goes, there's no way we're going to standardize treatment because culturally things are different in other parts of the world. I.e., you know, even heroin, you know, or hash, they're part of certain cultures, everyday life. So if we, if we were to legalize my, my support would be around that only if the profits were taken to be put into treatment and education, otherwise to legalize it, with the decision-making mindsets that our culture has in this country, I think we're, we have to plan for, you know, what are they, what's that term they use in war? Acceptable losses. Yeah, no, I agree with that too. If we treat it like we did alcohol after prohibition, where all of a sudden we can have buses driving by that are telling you which alcohol beverages to drink. If we do that with opiates, I mean, it's already a disaster with alcohol, but I don't, I don't see that changing because of the industry of alcohol. But if we, I do agree, if we do legalize heroin for for uh, addicts that are that are using it already, any money, any profit that comes in should be used to for treatment and for treatment facilities. Well, you know, New York right now, and I think San Francisco have opened up these legal, um, I call, I guess they call them ejection sites, where you can actually go in and take whatever substances you have, and you know, if you, you can't go in with an ounce of this and get an ounce of that, but they'll 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 
go confiscate you, you you donate or give them the, the illicit drugs you've got and they will make sure that you get a dose of something of equal or greater value i, I mean i'm oversimplifying the wording on it I, you know and i'm not sure that's exactly it but that's a form of exactly what you're talking about and i think that's a pilot program for in the, the studies around those when they're done probably will point to whether our society is ready for legalizing things like you know um but but on the other hand too if people were legally taking pharmaceutically controlled and overseen with quality assurance drugs, I don't think we'd be seeing the overdoses because they, they could wouldn't. find a way. They could find a way with the dose that you, you get a certain dose. It's not going to cause an overdose by, by definition, but you have to have some agreements around the fact that you know that if you take heroin and then you mix it with fentanyl and you smoke marijuana and you drink and you take a Xanax, then you're not eligible for the program because you're just abusing it from every level. But they don't need to warn you on that because you're not going to come back for the next dose because you're not going to make it through. Well, a lot of these people do use a lot of these drugs and survive all of them every single day. And also, but if you like go back to what you said about a safe dose, hospitals use fentanyl, morphine, and all these drugs every single day and nobody dies. And the, so right. what's killing people are unregulated doses in an unregulated market. And um, and also when you go back to the safe injection sites, you were saying that there there are there's you've heard that there are safe injection sites that are actually offering heroin to match people's heroin. Well, they're, they're giving them something as a substitute. I, I don't know whether it's heroin Suboxone or methadone or something like that, uh, you know, or um, well, the, naloxone. The, the, or well, they have, they have naloxone there. That's pretty from what I've read. All they have, in the, and I've talked to people in harm reduction, the safe injection sites are just a place where there's a nurse on duty and they've had zero deaths, but they've had many overdoses because people will go in, they'll shoot up their drug. There's all, there's, all of a sudden there's a too much fentanyl. They go into overdose, but naloxone is an, a miracle worker. It immediately reverses the effects of opiates. It doesn't get you right. high at all. So it's just a place where you can go do your drugs and not die if they if they if it's a bad batch or whatever. And um, other countries have done even better things, like Spain. But the, Spain has decriminalized all drugs. They're all illegal. There's no legal market to purchase them. But there's legal government funded testing for all drugs, so you can send in a sample of whatever drug you have, and they'll test it. And because of this, ninety five percent of street drugs are pure. And that's and even, even so, even though there's no legal market for them and there's no promotion of them, and that also puts all all the money stays in the hands of of you know the cartels or whoever's promoting them. That's negative, but the positive is nobody's dying there, not the way that they are. Well, if you're telling me that you think there's an idea out there that America can adopt that would save lives, I don't know how, as a helpless hoper, uh, hopeless helper. I could disagree with trying that. I mean, it's just, it would be, you know, if we're losing north of 300 people a day to the opioid crisis alone in our country, and it's possible to put a system in place, you know, on a national level that could reduce that by 10, 15, 20, 30%, I I couldn't argue not supporting that. 100%. The problem is, is our country doesn't, you know, we're very polarized. And so if, if one political party started moving this direction, then the other party would simply run a bunch of ads that made them look like they were drug peddlers and then they'd lose an election. So nothing gets done because of that. And, um, yep. but, th- there, but there are like, even in Texas, Texas has strict laws. They cannot have safe injection sites there, but they do. There's many nurses ris- risking their careers who are not into drugs are not into drug cultures. They're in, they got into being a nurse to save lives. That's it. So they run illegal um, needle exchange programs to save lives, risking their careers to do it. And that's amazing. But I think laws against that should immediately go away. 
Um, I know there's a lot of concern with where to put the safe injection sites. Somebody in a neighborhood, a nice neighborhood, they're scared that a safe injection site is going to all of a sudden bring in an element to the neighborhood they don't want. But what they're not considering is the parks by their house already have syringes in them. There won't be syringes in your park if there's a place where they can go do them. And that's something that people need to realize. Switzerland's a great example. The, they're, they're a conservative country. They were anti this whole heroin program thing. And then, and now they all support it because they saw their parks clean up. They saw their addicts get healthier, get better. A lot of them got off of heroin. They have less heroin users than they did before they had legal access to it. And that says a lot. I think our drug culture in this country, it almost, it, there's almost like a, a, a rebel element to it, you know, like a, a, like a cool feeling like you're a part of a club, you're a part of an underground movement of people who don't care if they live or die. And there's, and it, when you strip all that away from it, it just becomes going to a clinic and getting your, your drugs so you can go to work. I think a lot of people go, okay, now that I'm stable, how do I get off of this stuff and ha stop having to go to this clinic and do this every day? And people start. Well, you know, this, this country's done it with methadone. I mean, it's a federally supervised and takes about three years to open up a clinic if you want to do it. And the way they, they dose out methadone, people physically have to come get it unless they're, you know, they're, they're on an honor system because they've performed well and they get to take some home with them. But, you know, there's an example of harm reduction that has been done by this country around, you know, mostly the addiction to uh, to uh, heroin. So clearly we found a way to do that. And that's been going on for decades, if I'm not mistaken. So to your point, though, it's almost like, you know, the way you're watching our political leaders now, you, you, you say to them, look, today is Wednesday. Someone's going to argue with you and go, you know, Aaron, it's it's really not Wednesday. It's the day after Tuesday and the day before Thursday. Like what? You know, it's like we, we can't seem to agree what time the sun's going to set. And it, to your point, someone's going to come up with this wonderful idea. And, you know, which look, I was around. I lost a brother to HIV 30 years ago before, you know, AIDS was even a conversation that people knew about. And I remember being involved when the needle exchange program first came out in our community and I wanted to support it and tried to support it, but I wasn't welcome because I wasn't part of the the culture that was doing that, you know, the healthcare providers and the county. And, you know, that thing was controversial, still stands to be. But at the end of the day, with the volume of people, you know, somebody I interviewed me last week and said we're north of 800 people a day dying between alcohol opioids, methamphetamine, crack, and that number didn't even include suicide. So if that's true, as a country, we have to be talking about this like we are, as much as we're talking about obesity, diabetes, uh, cataracts, reverse mortgages, you know, buying that insurance, extended insurance for your car. I mean, you see the people that spend money advertising. We need to be talking about this as much and not in a way that's negative, but it's it's engaging and it and it's it's passionate and it's letting people know that, you know, it's OK to make your own decisions. But here's some information that might help you make that decision with more information. It's, kind of, it's like learning how to drive. Nobody gets put behind the wheel of a car and says, okay, go for it. Somebody coaches them and there's someone to ask questions and you can get almost anything you want on YouTube, but you, you can't save a life on YouTube. You can get some information, maybe how to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, sorry, I got distracted. It's got an alert from my Zoom saying the meeting will be over in 10 minutes unless I upgrade. I've never had this problem before. I don't know why it's doing that unless they change their platform. Well, we got um, nine minutes. That, that kind of- Hey, I'm- uh, 
I'm an ex-tweaker. What I can do in nine minutes, most people can't do it in a day and a half. <laughs> I unfortunately, we'll have to finish this up. But um, right, we got to say we got eight more minutes. I don't. I just like I say, I've never had that happen. I've had unlimited time on this forever. I don't know why it's doing that. But um, I wanted to ask, or I wanted to talk about the methadone clinics. One of the problems with them is, I mean, methadone is a great drug because of the half-life. It lasts so long that they can take a pill in the morning and be good for the, till the next day but it doesn't give them the high that a lot of them want. That's why they have relapses with heroin. But the bigger problem is, is there's not enough, uh, enough of them and there's not enough room for a lot of people to get in them. I've uh, talked to harm reduction people and had them on my podcast who they'll, they'll call every single day, different clinics trying to get in just to see, you know, how long it would take hypothetically if they needed to get in and there will be weeks and they still can't get in. And then another problem is the hours that they're in operation. I have a friend that had a heroin addict in, uh, I was dating a heroin addict in Fort Lauderdale and she didn't wake up in time to be there by nine in the morning. And then they closed at nine in the morning. So she had to, he had to drive her to a, to a heroin dealer to get heroin or she was going to start going into withdrawal. And I feel like if it, if it were, and it does work for a lot of people, this methadone, and it's um, a pretty reliable, safe drug, if that's the only one that they're going to be allowed to prescribe, how do we get funding to keep these, uh, to keep to get more of these open and more available for more people and to get rehab facilities. Like I'm assuming what you own costs a lot of money for the people. People can't afford 20,000, $25,000 for rehab. How do we, how do we get the financial, the, the government to spend the money and invest in this? Well, when you look at the insurance companies and the profits they make, I mean, it's just unbelievable. They get, they could certainly scholarship, bring a, a, a reimbursement rate down, keep people in treatment longer. Plus there's a lot of different anonymous programs out there that you can get for the continuum of care. As far as methadone goes, you know, it's again, because it's federally controlled, they probably, what it is, they have a budget. And with that budget, it, you know, they only can pass out so much per day. And after that, on a fiscal year, if somebody runs out of money, they stop, you know, they, ha they have to keep passing out the methadone. Otherwise they're going to put, you know, they're going to create a new zombie land, if you will. So, you know, that's one of the things the government's adopted. And I don't, you know, I don't know what the volume of it is. I don't know what the money is around it. I haven't seen those, that information just because I, I think it's a tool and I think there's different tools out there. And I know that um, people who are dependent on it, you know, swear by it. And there are a lot of people have just been able to maintain a regular life by getting it. And there's a lot of people that have abused it. And one of my biggest beefs with methadone clinics is they, they don't offer enough treatment. I mean, they're all supposed to have an outpatient program on the grounds, but they need the staffing to do the dosing. So they really don't, they, they offer it because they have to. And most people that come to get their methadone don't want to hang around for three hours and go to an education class about how to be abstinent. So it's kind of a, you know, one of those catch 22s again. And, you know, look, we're, we're in a state with 40 million people. California has got some, you know, we have half the homeless in the country. And this, I went through as a homeless provider, you know, just trying to help people who, you know, I've, so I've worked with communities throwaways. I've worked with people who have major issues, co-occurring issues, mental health issues, behavioral, you know, health barriers. And I've seen how the system really isn't set up to help people long-term. There's episodic, there's EDs, you know, emergency rooms, there's county mental health where people can stop in for 72 hour holds. But they're, they're, it's like we as a society have to take much better care of the people in our society in a way that creates systemic change, doesn't contribute or enable. Yeah. Um, I, I still wonder how, how we can, uh, well, let me ask you this in California, do they, do how much funding does your state offer for facilities like you run? Is there any, is it all privately paid or is there actual state? Well, for what I do is private. Yeah. And we do, we do graduating sliding scales. We work with a lot of veterans. There's resources for them. And every insurance company I deal with is an arm wrestle and a negotiation because the rates 
it's different. I mean, somebody can come to me with, you know, having Blue Cross, but there's 25 different variable plans, the deductible may be 20 bucks for, you know, each session. And I hear, you know, people come in and go, I don't want to spend 20 bucks. Guys, come on. You told me you gambled away a half a million dollars over the last two years. It's going to cost you 20 bucks a session. It's 60 bucks a week, for God's sakes. You're saving your own life. Is that really your problem? Well, no, I just wanted to throw it out there. So I think, you know, insurance companies, that there's plenty of money because everybody pays a lot for insurance, you know, and even people who are on Medi-Cal or Medicaid, you know, and I'm on Medicare now personally. Uh, you know, you, you pay for it different ways. You have to wait in line. There's long appointment wait times. You have to, you know, you got to go in, you got to sit down, you got to spend a lot of time. And if you were working, you'd be losing income while you're doing that. So I don't, you know, I like the idea of socialized medicine personally. I mean, Canada, I think does it that most of Europe seems to do it. I was in Amsterdam. I cut myself. I was bleeding out for like three days, a slow bleed. And somebody says, you know, you can walk into the hospital. It's free. I go, no way. I walk in, the doctor pulls out a chunk of glass, he says, you know, if you hadn't come in, you could have died on the flight home. Wow. So, you know, That's being able to have that kind of access to healthcare, you know, you know, it's just, to me, it's got to, the way we do business with people who suffer, it's, it's not right. It's just, I, I, you know, working with veterans, you know, PTSD and other issues, we, we can do a much better, like I put it this way, we can do a much better job, in my opinion. I agree. And also people that are anti-social medicine, they need to realize that our country already, our government already spends more money on government funded medicine than socialized med- countries that have socialized medicine. The problem is our pharmaceutical companies make way too much money on, on what they're doing. And I'm not, this is not my area of expertise, but you can look into it. And I've, I've read things about it. Socialized medicine. I think it's a good idea. This for profit on people's health. And also the idea that, I mean, you look, the, we're the, one of two countries that allows advertising of pharmaceuticals that you have to go to a doctor to ask about. The doctor should be the one telling you what medicine you need. And our country's flip-flop with advertisement it's getting it's it's just a it's a a money grab for all these huge industries and uh, i hate this i hate to do this we're we're running out of time on this thing that i didn't know was ever going to be a problem like i say it's never been a problem um so so we got about two minutes left um let me ask you this what advice would you give someone listening who is having an addiction that they can't seem to get off and they don't have the money to go to a facility. What's step one to pick yourself up and to put yourself into a place to get better? Well, you know, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll throw my phone number out there. And I'll just invite them to call me and we'll talk about it. Call me at 619-993-2738. 619-993-2738. There's, in most metropolitan areas, there's places you can go if you don't have a resource. There is Medi-Cal. There is subsidies. Um, there are faith-based groups. There are 12-step programs. There are different ways to access treatment. And if you're willing and you're ready and you feel like you need some help and you want to do something about the pain you're in, there is a way. There's always hope and help. That's what I believe. There's always hope and help. And I hope people call, you know, or just go online and Google, how do I get help for my addiction? You'd be amazed at the information that's out there today because most counties, they have to provide it because they're funded by the feds and the states and they have to provide some sort of access treatment. Can you get in this afternoon? Will they come pick you up? Probably not. But you know what? It wasn't that easy to go get your stuff either. You had to work hard to get it. So you put 10% of the effort into getting clean that you put into getting your drugs or alcohol. My sense is you will do real well because if you survived it, you've got some great skills. That's great advice. And also for if, if someone's family member, 
um, it's not, if, if it's not them themselves suffering, but a family member, the same thing, they can look up the information and be, and being supportive to the person going through. It's probably the most important thing, not this tough love thing. Um, we are about out of time, Scott, thank you so much for doing this. And also that was really sweet of you putting your number out there. People just can call you and talk to you. That's awesome. And great person, great work. I love what you're doing. All right, man. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about and help me reduce the stigma. It's awesome. Awesome, man. Thank you. Take care. Reducing the stigma. Now, I've talked about this before, and I've said this is the number one thing we can do. There go with my dogs. I'm going to leave that in. That's Lieutenant Dan barking. He's a good boy. So, reducing the stigma. That is number one, the most important thing that we all can do if you're listening and you're not... um, yourself ever even thought about using drugs it's just not been on your radar you have not had no, no desire to maybe you, know, you have a few drinks with dinner or something if you're just not a drug person you found this podcast interesting for whatever reasons you listen to it maybe you're one of my sisters or you know me but um i i just i think the first thing we can do if we're on the outside of drug culture uh is to stop stigmatizing those who are on the inside of that of that world where there is um, there's pain, there's trauma, there is people that are now having to use drugs that could possibly kill them. They don't know what day could be their last and they don't know how they're going to get help. We need to stop looking at them as less than human. They are human. They are people. They're just like us. Unfortunately, the drugs that helped them get through the things or is, are currently helping them get through the things that they need to get through are illegal they are on a dangerous black market and it might be that if they had a safe supply of the drug that they were doing and that they could get it regularly affordably that they could work through the problems that they're working through and get off of these drugs that is the world that i think most of us want is a world where less people are addicted to drugs and no one is dying from them in our streets you know, because people have used alcohol and cannabis, luckily, is a safe drug. Even on the black market, it is relatively safe because it is a just, you know, it's a natural plant. So th- those drugs have worked for people. People have worked through them. And most people in their early 20s going through these, you know, go, uh, whatever you want to call them, whether it's drug addictions or drug abusing or just even just drug using, whatever it is, most of them get get to a place better in their life when they get into their 30s and 40s but a lot of them now aren't making it into their 30s and i think we need to do more about this so again if you like the podcast please go on apple podcast give us a five-star rating it helps us out you want to subscribe to our newsletter go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe and follow us on twitter instagram the peace on drugs podcast thank you so much for listening We're going to let Twiggy Branches take us on out. Out.